0: Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten free, stone ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today.
1: I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat.
2: So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins.
1: Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies, but it endangers our environment as well.
2: The emissions of JBS combined with the other top five meat companies exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this
1: week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen. Podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Dana Cowan, former editor-in-chief of Food and Wine magazine and host of Heritage Radio Networks Speaking Broadly. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Dana about her embrace of the new era in food media her point of view on food and print publishing, and we'll hear Dana's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to our last episode of 2018, the final one in our third season, hard to believe we've already done a year's worth of episodes as our regular listeners know in the first part of inside julia's kitchen we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Joy. we're returning to one of julia's and my key values the importance of good food writing julia was passionate that food writing had the power to inform motivate and teach the curious and it was her profound desire to ensure that good food writing had a future particularly as a profession Today, we're continuing our series exploring the state of food magazines in the digital age and its impact on professional food writing and writers. Now, back in episode 18, we talked to former Bon Appetit magazine editor-in-chief, Barbara Fairchild, and got her insights. Barbara didn't come out and say it, but she certainly said that print isn't the future of food writing. In episode 29, we talked to the current editor-in-chief of Food & Wine, Hunter Lewis, about his perspective in the trenches. And Hunter, he said he saw that print was, had a continued relevance, but he also emphasized that food and print had to focus on keeping up with, if not getting ahead of, reader interests, and also on delivering content that's harder for websites to do well, like a long read. So today we're consulting another expert, a veteran of the food and print world, and someone already knee-deep in new media. Dana Cowan was editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine for 21 years, and she's still very young and a tastemaker, talent scout, author, lecturer, and fellow radio show host. Her Heritage Radio Show Network's show, Speaking Broadly, explores the myriad paths to success in the food world, predominantly featuring female guests. Like this program, it's an interview-driven format highlighting special guests. And today we're turning the tables and Dana is our special guest. So we're ready to add Dana's perspective to our exploration of the future of food writing in print. Welcome to the podcast, Dana.
2: Hey Todd, I'm very happy to be here. I love being in a guest chair.
0: Well, great. We'll we'll see if you love it at the end.
2: <laughs> I can tell already; it's gonna be awesome.
0: <laughs> so you've been out in the wilds of the the new media landscape and food. So I'm curious to get your perspective, kind of looking back on and looking both both back on your career, but also looking back from from when you left and what you've been doing since then. On on what what do you how do you see the the landscape for print publishing in food right now?
2: Well, I guess we should start maybe with the looking back. I I feel that I was lucky to be the editor of Food & Wine magazine for 20 years when print was the medium of choice. I mean, most of the time, not the entire time. But print is a great thing. You you meet people who are like, "I, I love holding it. I love flipping the pages. I like the fact that I can, you know, dog ear it. I can tear things out. So people used to have these, uh, you know, systems where magazines were so useful because you could put things in a file later. You know, you would have it on your bedside. It was very relaxing. Um, And with those imperatives, the idea of food journalism was to be useful. That's the tear out part. Oh, I'm going to use that later. So that would be either a recipe or, um, you know, travel recommendations, restaurant recommendations, but also leisurely and lovely and something that you would want to sink into and really enjoy from your bed, your bathroom, (laughs) your subway, you know, any any of those places. And I think that the current state of food magazines is such that the ones that excel focus more on that, the second part, which is the luxuriating in the moment, having people feel something and really tight editorial vision, which would be, you know, you can go anywhere on the internet, you can find any kind of recipe, but you can't necessarily have the same sense of trust as you did with that magazine that you, you knew so well, you got it every month, and it it was just there for you. The part that, that, the tearing out the dog-eared pages, I feel like that has um, gone into into the web in a really productive way. Like I have so many lists and lists upon lists that are compiled from multiple sources. So I've become my own supra editor um, and I can create my own editorial moment. And so many people do, right? I travel all the time and I'm always collecting recommendations of where to go and everybody sends me their list. So I have the list of all lists and everybody else has their list of all lists. And the the way in which we used to do that in the in the past doesn't really seem... Relevant in this landscape.
0: How do you do? How do you do that now, though? Is your list a paper list? Is it an award document, or is it some elaborate series of bookmarks? And you know how to use that toolbar a lot better than I do.
2: Uh, it's all cutting and pasting. So I keep all of my recommendations by city in notes, and so every city I go begins um, a new note, and the you know recommendations from ten or so different sources get cut and pasted. Some of them are digital magazines some of them are friends some of them are my past experiences just to have them all in one place and if i were um more ambitious it would live on an excel spreadsheet but i'm not like notes is about as far as i'm gonna go
0: yeah i guess that that makes sense to me because i'm still a, a i'm not a technophobe but i'm also still a fan of print publications and i we did a recent trip to paris and i was looking up i was like oh i know i saw in magazines all these cool hotels that i said oh i'd love to stay in and it was sort of reading the print magazine that in, in, in bed, as you said, that, that got me absorbed. But when I needed to then refer to that information, I went to the magazine's website because it was a lot faster and more efficient to try to look up when did they cover that because I didn't remember that.
2: Exactly. And then, the, you know, the, the world of recipes, one of the struggles or things that we thought about a lot at Food & Wine back in the day was, you know, what type of recipes are we doing? Because... We always were doing things that had a little bit extra, so they weren't the basics. You go online, you can get the basic for anything. Um, but if, you're, um, if online, your success is determined by the number of clicks, then you actually need a lot of basics. You know, In the print world, having a personality and having things that were unusual was really great. In the digital world, that became um, like an interesting challenge to meet. And so we actually assigned a ton of basics just to help all the, like the wide, wide internet world that was not looking for the food and wine point of view but was looking for great food and they, they came across us because of great SEO. So you know, um, we reshaped some of our core offerings in digital.
0: You're kind of talking now about the transition from when print was in its prime to then confronting the rise of digital and how you start rebalancing. What exactly
2: you're doing. right, and so you used to be able to. You used to tear recipes. Um, I still actually tear recipes, um, but you also usually when I'm in the kitchen, uh, I'm Googling a recipe and I'll take the average of multiple different you know um, different sites to be sure that I. I trust the recipe, but that's a huge difference in food magazines in the past and food magazines today because what they they might want their point of view to be in print is actually pretty different from what would be successful online.
0: Well, and I feel like at the dawn, maybe not the dawn of the internet, when the internet started to be commonplace and, and, and most people were using it, there was a big thing on on the sort of publishing side of making these giant databases of, of recipes like Epicurious was. But that, that, that a lot of the publications have really moved away from that now. And so I find that I'm more often, and, and you were talking about editorial trust, like when I need to, I'm like, oh, I need to make this. I get out my five favorite cookbooks that I think Um, including Julia Child, that would have that kind of, you know, let's say pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving recipe in it. And then I go from there and then I think, oh, do any of these work? Is this what I want to do? And then I might consult the web because I feel like the web is sort of devolved as a collection of recipes or do do you disagree with that?
2: Um, I think that your approach is unusual, at least from the people that I've talked to. And it used to drive me crazy. (laughs) Like, you know, people would take crowdsourced Recipes and they'd be like, "Yeah, this is you know, either it was really good, or it, I must have messed it up myself." But they didn't really look to the to the s- source so much, and people weren't necessarily looking at cookbooks. I think people, I think cookbooks are an amazing, immersive medium. They're fantastic because they bring you into the world of the um, of the author, and they usually go deep. and There's a tremendous connectivity between the person reading the cookbook and um and the author which is great but i find that in general when people are looking for recipes online and they're not as diehard as we are todd like we are Mm. diehards Mm. uh, (laughs) they're pretty open-minded about you know what recipe pops up first in search
0: and so what do you do you think they're using no metric of trust or they're just using kind of vague brand recognition of the website and trusting that? Where, where does trust fall out in that equation then?
2: Uh, my experience is that trust falls out among most people, not the superfood centric ones. Like I will always look for a source that I trust, but I think most people look for stars and volume, right? So if something's been cooked a thousand times and has like a four and a half star rating, that's good enough to them. Like they don't need to know who that person is or have ever heard of that blog or, um, so there's a lot of, on the positive side, there's a ton of opportunity, right? So you, if you have a great recipe and you wanna put it out there and enough people like it, you can become the best searched you know recipe for mole
0: Yes, I think you're terrifying everyone who is a food writing professional <laughs> who writes cookbooks, but I'm I'm sure you're right. Because, of course, if you're not a super foodie or not even that into cookbooks, but you want to make a pumpkin pie, you're not going to search. You're going to search pumpkin pie and whatever comes up in the, in the search optimization is going to be what you go for. Like you said, particularly if you see something, oh, that has five stars or almost five stars.
2: Right. But the on the positive side for the cookbook authors, I think it... Today, it's all about the connection between the author and the audience, right? So you can create an audience out of nothing. You don't need Food & Wine magazine the way that you did in the past. You can go directly to your followers on Instagram. You can go directly to your followers on Facebook. You can can build your audience yourself, build that trust, build the community, have them really know you. And then when you get that cookbook deal and when you go on the road – it's amazing because you meet all these people that you've connected with over time and your success is instant rather than, you know, taking, taking longer because you know who's going to buy your book and you know what they like and you've already sort of adjusted and, and you know, met their need. It's kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, no, that kind of immediacy. Dory Greenspan was on and she was talking about that because I'm always amazed at her facility, particularly when she's not, you know, a brand new writer and someone who was born with a smartphone in her hand that she's really embraced that and and that's what she was saying she was saying that a feedback loop of immediacy and particularly because she experienced it in both realms or both you know non-digital and digital age she's like that's amazing to me and that's why i love it and um so so in that in this new era that we were just talking about do you, do you personally having spent a lot of time in the, in the in the print world does print still matter do you think going forward
2: I think that print will come back I think that there are people who long for the the embrace of print I think it just depends you know I don't think print will exist as it has because so much of print is service and service being um, what am I going to cook tonight? Um, where am I going to go tomorrow? And service has moved elsewhere. But the notion of rooting something longer and deeper, looking at something more beautiful, uh, having food and writing and the imagery become an object—you know, something of desire, something that feels special, something that only comes out four times a year, uh, as opposed to having a, a monthly cycle or Every other month cycle, I feel like that's where the the future is. Something that is that has a sense of permanence about it, because when you spend on paper, it should be something that you you value and um, you know has both a visual and a useful place in your life.
0: And do you think I was going back and forth in my own mind because obviously the web is still a visual medium. Photos matter, and they you know made strides in layouts and things like that. But then there's also something about the, the staticness and the intimacy with a, a print publication and the kind of it, actually expense that's often made for print publications on on photos do you do you see them being on a level footing or is there still something print can do with imagery that is hard for the web to match
2: i think that there can be a level of ambition in in print that i don't see quite as much online and or if i do see it online it's more niche i feel like it has a there's a greater opportunity for a deeper and more creative exploration in the visuals in print, um, which isn't to say that you can't have it digitally, but you can't hold onto it. You can't keep referring back to it. It's not something that's, um, you know, it's not something you you take with you and find inspiration from in the same way. Because I think when, when you're in the digital mode, you're in a speed mode, right? You're trying to see as many things Get as many images in your brain and um, experience as quickly as possible. And I think that the one of the reasons that that print will have be a great format going forward is there will be this notion of slowing down and unplugging. Like I don't think the entire world will stay plugged to the degree that it is, particularly with all the news coming out of Silicon Valley and from psychologists. I mean, I I think that we have. Um, a digital addiction and i think that print will be an escape from this digital addiction and food immersive as it is with the beauty and um the sort of the luxury not in um, ingredients but in community will have a role in that slower time and as a place you can take a break
0: yeah, I was going to ask you, I was just thinking about and, and not necessarily something I, I wanted to make you discuss, but so much at food and wine has changed in the last three years since you stepped down. And that pace of turbulence is just uh, un- unbelievable. And I think food and wine's experience is, is, is not necessarily the norm, but it's kind of emblematic of the pace of change. And from, from your seat, do you see that this turbulence kind of going on for the next decade or do you feel like it has to slow down?
2: Uh, Food and Wine indeed has had a very turbulent uh, three years with moving the brand to Alabama, having, we had, I guess, three owners in maybe five, six years or so. I don't think that there are that many big brands, particularly food focused out there uh, anymore. So I think in that way, the rate of change will slow because I don't think we're going to grow new big brands in print. I think we will go grow new big brands, but they will be so multidimensional. You won't even be able to say where the, where the origin point is. And I actually think that's incredibly exciting. I think it's exciting to have um, to stand for something in food that has a podcast version an events version, um, a print version and you know, every other integrated way to connect to a community of people who care about the, the same issues, the same stories, and want to learn together.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue. I was going to ask you, given all that you're paying attention to and thinking about and the, the worlds that you live in, what are some of your favorite um, reads, whether print or digital, like um, when you're looking for those sources to make your your personal lists? What, what do you find yourself using as go-to stuff or or maybe not even go-to but the 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 indulgent long read stuff
2: um i i love reading the long pieces and i i have some pretty good shortcuts because eater um amanda has an email in eater that comes every weekend and she does a recap of all of the reads that she loves which is kind of fantastic because there are things that I miss. So I use her as my backstop to know that there's nothing that, like, for example, she, um, actually she's on maternity leave. So, uh, the person who's substituting in for her highlighted a piece in GQ, which was, uh, Quotes from people about Tony Bourdain that I wouldn't have seen otherwise because I don't look to GQ necessarily for my food <laughs> news. But you're I,
0: demographically slightly, slightly off.
2: You know, but they—it's not that they don't do good food coverage; it just isn't my sweet spot. Um, and I love Food and Tech Connect, which again covers the world of food in a really deep um, and original way. And they collect links, so I'm giving people shortcuts and cheats here because if Danielle covers it um again perhaps i've seen it on my own i've seen it in the times or the wall street journal or on food and wine's website or bon appetit Uh, but if there's something i've missed it's there and she breaks it down into um, technology consumer um, and business so i you get a fully rounded view of the food world one of the things after having left food and wine i became interested in not that I wasn't interested before but took a deeper dive into every aspect of the food world which is emerging technologies emerging businesses which would be something like fast casual um, we were always concerned about sustainability at food and wine but looking at sustainability um, more thoroughly as well as the food and the personalities so um, food and tech connect is phenomenal
0: and is that that is that the name of the newsletter or is that the name of the website
2: it's the name of the newsletter and it's Danielle Danielle Gould. So if you just search.
0: And is it actually kind of, is she independent in the, the sense it's not actually tied to a publication? It's just something she as a writer puts together?
2: She puts it together as part of her own um, larger organization where she connects food and technologists.
0: Well, I love that. So you did one big, so I assume the Eater recap that you said Amanda's the editor of, that's an, from Eater National?
2: Well, um, yes.
0: And so that's a big one. And and then Food and Tech Connect, that you said Danielle Gould does, that's actually from kind of an individual doing um, kind of amazing stuff.
2: Right. And then um, at Food & Wine, I never looked at Bon Appetit. I actually didn't open the covers. Um, But my team did. Like, it's not that we didn't know what was going on. It's just I couldn't do it because they did such a good job. And I didn't really, I just, I kept that closed. But now I actually love reading Bon Appetit, which just tickles me. Um, You know, it's, it's, It's fun to see their perspective and to see how they treat this fantastic world of food. And then um, I look at the new food economy, which is, again, you know, sort of sideways to recipes. And then I I take very, you know, I take a long time um, in Instagram just floating from handle to handle to handle to handle till I don't even know where I started. (laughs) Um, But, You know, I I follow a core group of probably 100 chefs, and out from there, probably, you know, 100 different influencers in the world of food, and out from there, um, the places where there's the intersection of food and the rest of the world. So, um, you know, food and design, food and travel, um, food and drinking, tons of good drinking, like Punch is an amazing, uh, amazing site. So I could go on and on because I actually consume an enormous amount of food media. In fact, I probably have I'm probably obese um, with all that I've, you know.
0: <laughs> that, that, that did seem extensive, but very helpful and a lot of great ideas. So since we're coming up on the holidays, I have to ask you about. I have to ask you a holiday question because I I know that's on everyone's mind right now. So I was curious, do do you have a holiday tradition that you would share with us or or is there also some things that you're just like, this has gone by the wayside in the modern era, we don't do this anymore, like no more eggnog? (laughs)
2: Um, I am a little holiday agnostic. I I think it's the way that I grew up. Um, So my mother does Thanksgiving, which of course we've passed, but uh, so that's often... You know, it's the biggest food holiday, particularly in the food magazine world. Like, that was my favorite issue to do. You'd re- reinvent Thanksgiving every single year. Um, and every year we did amazing recipes. And I never cooked a single one of them because we went to my mother's and she essentially ordered takeout. So that was that holiday tradition. In the New York tradition. In the Right. And then um, for Christmas, uh, I'm Jewish. And so we grew up with Chinese food and a Christmas tree. And, um, and so that was never a cooking holiday for me. So, in fact, my, my cooking holidays are more like everyday events when I have a bunch of friends over and have a fondue party or um, I love a theme party. Like, you can't actually find anyone who loves theme parties more than I do. And so um, I sort of ignore the big holidays that everybody else celebrates, hope to get invited or eat some Chinese food and save my cooking for other times.
0: Well, th- th- those are some good traditions too, and of course, if you're Jewish, that might be um, commonplace knowledge to you that a lot of Jewish people have Chinese food on Christmas. <laughs> if you're not, now you know that <laughs> it's it's not a secret, but it's not often discussed. Um, and generally, that would be out at a restaurant, which is the only one that's open, rather than making it for themselves. Um, at least as far as I know, do you make it or you go out?
2: We we do we go out.
0: Yes, I think the tradition, the Jewish tradition on Christmas with Chinese food is generally going out, and we also. My my, my family is Jewish as well, as I've said before on the podcast, and um, my parents have no Christmas food traditions, but we had fondue for New Year's, o- almost always, like homemade fondue, which was always great fun from this set my mom had. So
2: I I, yeah, I, I, fondue is actually, it's such a great party. I bought f- um, four, <laughs> four fondue pots so that I could, you know, really go crazy and had two dessert, you know, two used for dessert and two used for um, savory. So it's a it's a really fun way to do a party and once you have the fondue pots you're just party ready all the time whether it's New Year's or you know autumn.
0: Well, and it's a great way to be involved with your guests because unlike other kinds of cooking, you basically you can put it all together ahead of time, then you put it in to melt it and then you can really join the party rather than be running back and forth to the kitchen.
2: Now, does Julia have a great fondue recipe she must, right?
0: I'm sure she does, although I did look for one recently and it was not jumping out. And I think that's partly maybe the bias that like most chefs would be like, fondue is not really cooking, right? <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't really involve huge skill or technique, but it is great fun. So you heard it from Dana and I, and we want to hear if you guys decided to try a fondue themed party for New Year's. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to Dana about her other current pursuits, um, including her own podcast. So. Are you still dedicated to reading about food in print, or have you gone fully digital? What are your must-reads? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. Looking to make a statement at a holiday party this year? Julia has just the thing, a croquembouche. Never heard of it? It's a celebration dessert, traditionally served at baptisms or weddings. Julia suggested for a New Year's party. The name is a mashup in French, meaning crunch in the mouth, but it's just a tower of profiteroles, usually filled with pastry cream, piled up together using caramel as the glue, then doused in more caramel and or topped with spun sugar. Julia recommends you leave the puffs unfilled if you're making it ahead of time. It's both a simple and challenging dish. As Julia's recipe in the French Chef Cookbook shows you, step by step, it's only four key ingredients, flour, butter, eggs, and sugar but you need to know how to make shoe pastry well and how to make caramel. Of course, you'll wanna use the best quality flour from Bob's Red Mill. For motivation, Google Julia Child plus Martha Stewart plus croquembouche, C-R-O-Q-U-E-M-B-O-U-C-H-E to watch a charming video of the duo making one together. Then visit bobsredmill.com today and use the discount code Pod all one word in all caps, For valuable savings on all-purpose organic flour, just right for making holiday showstoppers. Welcome back. We're talking to Dana Cowan, former editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine and host of our sister, Heritage Radio Network show, Speaking Broadly. So I saw that you said if everybody built positive conversations into their lives, they would find the future they are looking for. That sounds very Taoist to me. So is that what what Speaking Broadly is all about?
2: That is a great summary of the idea behind Speaking Broadly. I started Speaking Broadly about two years ago, and my goal was twofold. One, I had left food and wine a year before, and I was trying to figure out what exactly... I was going to do next. Like, I, w- I had worked for a restaurant group and I was about to embark on some consulting. I didn't want to give up, um, you know, talking to people in the food world or creating any kind of content. So I'm like, oh, podcast, great. What should it be about? And I thought it, it could be about people who are in transitions and who have succeeded. What I, what I find is that um, it's a very long and windy road. To find success. In in my case, I was in media for thirty years, and it seems kind of straight. But there were some, you know, detours and um, pockets of, uh, you know, changing direction. And so I love talking to people about how they've gotten to where they are, what detours they took, how hard it was, how did they overcome those things, and um, hoping to inspire myself. But of course all of the listeners who might themselves be trying to figure out what to do next. And they love food and food has, there's so many different ways to be in the world of food. I think some people feel like, Oh, you need to do PR or you need to be a chef or you need to be a food writer. There's like three ways. But what I've been able to show throughout through the podcast is there's, I mean, I'm up to episode 78 and I won't say that every single person has a different um sort of position within the food world, but there's at least 50 different jobs. And so I love that. And the podcast has done exactly what I'd hoped um, for the listeners that I've heard from, but also for me that I, I leave the Heritage Radio Network studio and I just think, wow, that was amazing. You know, this person had never run a business and she just decided to run a business because she thought about it when she was standing at a bus stop. I mean, that happened. You know, all of these stories that you you hear them, you absorb them, and it makes you feel you can do anything.
0: Well, and I think what you said about in, in your quote about positive conversations. I mean, you know, that that summary came from you, not from me. Yeah. And um, but I I love hearing people's you know stories of their career path, however circuitous, because I think there's something you can always learn something from them, either both about the person, but then something you can apply to you. There's always in that conversation for me, one moment where we're like, oh yeah, wow, oh, you could do that. And I think it, it's incredibly helpful. And then I think there's a second layer of that, that human beings are programmed to learn from other human beings. So even though you could read an article about it, there's something about the conversation and hearing it spoken from the actual person that also kind of locks it in. Do you, do you have that? experience from it
2: um i do feel that way the thing that i find in a one-on-one conversation that's different in print is that you can probe a little deeper and one of the things that i love about the podcast format is that it's long i like get food and wine uh print stories of course had limited length digital stories did not but people have limited sort of attention spans whereas Pod- podcasts by their nature, people are, they're driving, you know, they, they, they're ready to just go with the flow and um, I think that as a result, what you learn from someone when you're listening to them, not only is it easier to listen because it's auditory, but it's also a bit more um easier because you're like engaged by their voice you're engaged by the emotion you're you know you're carried with them by their storytelling it hasn't been edited it's really immediate it's really direct so i find all of those things another reason why you know listening to these conversations can be kind of life changing
0: Yes, I totally agree. So, okay, I'm going to probe a bit deeper now. <laughs> of this. Because I, I want to do so, especially in sort of the era we're in, is I think it's easy to look at a show like Speaking Broadly, and it, as the name implied, it's 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 kind of, uh, it's certainly about women, and you can walk away, particularly as a man, being like, okay, that's for and about women, it's not for me. And, but then I think then everyone's missing out from that perspective. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to sort of explain um, just as you were reading GQ <laughs> lately, what do you think the, the show offers for men in listening to to a lot of women's experiences?
2: Well, one of the reasons that um, like in the description of Speaking Broadly, I never mentioned that's a show in which I only interview women is because the women that I speak to, they have amazing passions, and amazing careers. And so in the same way that I would listen to, you know, any, I mean, Elon Musk, oh, maybe he's a terrible example, but I would listen to <laughs> any man who has a great career who's um, taken an interesting path. I think the the lessons are universal and the people that I interview have made uh, an extraordinary mark. I mean, thinking about um, – jenny Britton bauer who you know has jenny's ice cream whether if you're starting a company um you'd want to listen to jenny because she's as an entrepreneur she's incredibly inspiring or ellen bennett from Headley and bennett the apron company if you're if you want to start a company you would want to listen to ellen if you are um you know and i could go through the you know the entire list if I had Dory on my show as you had Dory on yours. If you want to be a a cookbook author or you want to know how to have a long marriage, um, that's great for both sides. Yes.
0: Uh, That one's out. Who talked about that? Dory did. Because, yeah, yeah,
2: because Dory got married at 19 and Michael's the love of her life and the, not the secret to her success, but a great supporter of her success. Um, you know, I spoke to. Well, it's
0: that old adage, right? That 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 I think was always applied to to women. Behind every great man is a great woman. But the reverse is uh, it seems to be absolutely true.
2: That's hundred percent. You find these I mean, I think of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would not be who she was um, without her extraordinary husband. So I think we're talking about partnerships and the fact that learning isn't. You know, you don't learn by gender you learn, you learn by experience and you learn by um, you know, hardship and understanding how to deal with hardship. And in fact, on the show, I never asked that question, like, what does it feel like to be a woman doing this job? because I don't i I hate to say it, but I don't care. I mean, I don't that that isn't at the core. I mean, that might come out in many different ways in the conversation. so i I absolutely embrace that. but the my first question isn't, about being a woman. My first question is about how did you achieve this great success?
0: Well, and that makes sense. I think I know from talking about it and Julia was sensitive to it. And I think maybe there's a lot of debate over w- when Julia would say, I'm not a feminist or I don't want to talk about that. And I think part of that was that same thing that a lot of female chefs have when they're like, I don't want to be known as a female chef. I want to be known as a chef. That it, Gender should not be part of that. And, and, and I think... Uh, to a lot of women chef is slightly offensive because it it puts them in a separate category rather than the the larger category and i'd sort of wager that i think that julia's issue with the feminist brand was was similar which is like i don't want to be thought about in gender terms i just want to be me and my contribution does that does that resonate with you
2: 100 percent. and i had a a grandmother who would never call herself a feminist, and yet she was a lawyer um, in 1929, and wow. so she was, you know, way. I mean, they barely that was before Ruth
0: Bader Ginsburg for sure.
2: Yeah, um, they you know barely admitted women to to law school, and there she was, a lawyer and a, a public defender. And when I was taking women's studies because it was the 70s, and she would say that is ridiculous. Um, you know, you should. Set your eye on what you want, and you should do it. And I imagine Julia felt the same way. You set your eye on what you want, and you do it. She, Julia, did extraordinary things. Um, having, and it, she didn't spend her time taking women's studies classes. She just, you know, acted with her heart and um, had such a great personality and engaged people and changed the world.
0: As she did. So do you have any other, I know you named some some sort of prototypical episodes of, of what people could glean from them, but are there any, you know, a couple guests that stand out in your memory just because either their story surprised you in a way you didn't expect or or has just really stayed with you um, in a way you didn't expect?
2: Well, I interviewed a woman named um, Raina Twang who has a sandwich shop in Dallas. And first of all, it was very random that I ended up there. I was doing some consulting um, in Dallas, and I was, you know searching around in that list format that we were <laughs> talking about before, you know, cross-checking lists and what would I find. And I found this uh, shop called Sandwich Hag. and i I went, had this ex- amazing Vietnamese sandwich. we I connected with her on Instagram. She is the most powerful person that I've interviewed in the year. Her brother has um, Down syndrome and works by her side every single day and is what she says, the best worker she has. He can't do absolutely everything, but he does so much. And she's committed to this notion of all abilities. So not singling out, not singling him out saying he's disabled, but he has many abilities. They're just not the same as everybody else's abilities. And, That story to me was so poignant. In in addition, her family um, arrived in the U.S. as Vietnamese uh, refugees and um, really horribly, she was brought here by the church and then abused by a church member. And so her story has so many layers, and she is so strong. And uh, I think about two weeks ago, Eater named her the best sandwich shop in Dallas. And I was like, oh my God, this is so great. She so deserves it. And everybody deserves to hear the message um, that Raina shares. Well,
0: and I think those, uh, you know, she has like several survival stories, but I think that ultimately, and sometimes they're painful to listen to, but I think that they, they can be extremely inspiring. And is that, is that what you came away with from her? It's just being inspired by her her path and her commitment?
2: I was in- inspired by that Yes, but also that she's an advocate and she's an being an advocate for her brother um, and having this very deep understanding that I think most people don't have is a lot of what I took away. So less about being a survivor and more about being a fighter. And those things are not disconnected, but one has an enormous amount of forward motion. And I think that, the way in which she's fighting for all rights you know not singular rights is really important particularly in the world of restaurants
0: and we didn't even cover the food so what kind of sandwich <laughs> makes the place special oh my god
2: she does an amazing uh, meatball banh mi and every single thing that she cooks she is so um so intentional so it, you know, she picks the the cilantro leaf by leaf, and she's had people in the kitchen who're like, "Come on, do we really have to pick the cilantro this way? This is time consuming and ridiculous. We could just hack at it." She's like, "No, you can't. And if you you know if you want to cook that way, you, you just shouldn't really be in my kitchen." And she's doing a sandwich shop, so um, delicious Vietnamese, um, del- delicious Vietnamese sandwiches
0: what well, they say you can sort of taste that level of care and attention and and almost every great chef I've ever talked to they talk about putting their heart and soul and love into food and love in food is what makes it taste so good
2: there is so much love in her food and a lot of perfectionism and i think those two things married that is you know where the great chefs shine so it's because love can be very woo woo right but if you don't have like a perfectly <laughs> clean um, you know, workspace and you don't have a perfect mise en place and you're not ready all that love in the world isn't gonna help you cook
0: indeed as a recovering perfectionist I, <laughs> I certainly <laughs> admire other perfectionist standards so so before we move to the Julia moment I what, what's coming up for you what are you really looking forward to in your life or hoping to do in 2019
2: I'm working on a variety of very exciting projects something that I've just um, been working on is doing a live speaking broadly. So so in front of an audience where I have one person on stage with me. um, But before they come on stage, I interview their closest confidant, someone who knows everything about them. And I ask them, you know, the person comes to speaking broadly in this case because they want to figure out what to do next in their career it's a little bit of an obsession of mine I mentor people all the time I consider myself a little bit of a a career psychic in that I can tell you what you should do with your life even if you can't see it for yourself because I feel like it's inside of every person so I speak to um, I'm going to speak to the the great confidant Um, while the guest isn't in the room and they don't hear this then I bring the um the guest to the stage, and we go through. I I have a, a strategy for helping people get to figure out what they should do next, and then I make recommendations. But what's great about doing it live is I'm going to invite the audience to add on. Like, did I miss something? Is there something else that they would recommend? And then finish with um, sort of connections from the audience. Like, is there someone that you think? Uh, the person on stage should talk to? Like, do you have some real connections that can be made here to help move their life forward? So um, right now that's uh, an idea in formation, but I have a, a place to do it and a format. I'm really, really ex- excited about following that through.
0: That sounds amazing. And, and I, I, you know, there, different people have their different takes and sort of makeover shows had just sort of gone in a myriad kind of wacky, D- directions. But I think, you know, anyone who's watched the new season of Queer Eye, you know, that's the same format, right? They talk to everybody else and find out what A is so great about this person and what's missing in their life that they have trouble seeing. And then they use that in the whole process. And it's incredibly powerful and, um, you know, tr- transformational. And and of course, it's not just the physical transformation. It's the the spiritual and the whole outlook and the Moving forward, I think that sounds amazing.
2: And I'm a huge queer eye fan, I have to say. (laughs) I just they're great, those boys.
0: I need a whole box of tissues every episode. (laughs)
2: Ridiculous.
0: All right, after the break, Dana's gonna share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter.
0: When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't... I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen... Who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Dana, what's your Julia moment?
2: Uh, my favorite, I have so many, as I'm sure every guest you have says, um, but my, my favorite Julia moment was when I went to visit her in Boston. Uh, with Tini Yulaki, who is the executive food editor at Food & Wine. And we got in her car to go to lunch. So first, just being in her house and seeing the immortal pegboard and, you know, absorbing what that kitchen was and the whole life that had been lived there and her sort of humility and humor and just being in the presence of the space and the person was amazing. Then, trans going into her tiny car, um, and it was the scariest ride of my life, which says a lot. Because I don't think that, of all of Julia's great talents, I'm not sure that driving was really top (laughs) among them. And um, and then we arrived at a restaurant in Boston, and uh, Julia didn't love the food. And I learned one of the great lessons that stood me has stood me so well over the last couple of decades. So the chef comes out, of course, wanting to know exactly what Julia thought and it was so important to them. And Julia child was in the restaurant and, and Julia, they said, so, you know, what did you think? And Julia leaned back and she said, we had the most marvelous time. And, that was it. I mean, she didn't like the food, and but she did have a good time. So she wasn't telling an untruth. She just was not going to go there and talk about food if she didn't like it. And so those few hours are my favorite favorite Julia hours. Um, both, you know, absorbing the history, but understanding her her elegance and um, her way of really wanting to be generous to people who are putting their heart and soul into the into the food
0: grace under pressure that's a lovely story yes i never uh, julia wasn't driving when i met her so uh-huh. I but, that, but but that story does not does not surprise me i think she came from a generation where where, where care and precision and driving was was not paramount
2: no um but we got uh, home and back in one piece which of course um is also a very important part of the story
0: yes you've lived to tell about it and it's indelible in your memory which is lovely so thank you so much for sharing that and thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure
2: it's been lovely talking to you and thanks so much for having me on inside julia's kitchen
0: It's our pleasure and a big thank you for listening all year and for joining us for this last episode of season three to all our listeners. We'll be back for season four in mid January. We wish your holidays are full of good food and good company, just like that dinner Dana talked about. Um, Stay connected over the break. Follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child, J-C-F on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. If you want to learn more about everything that Dana is up to, follow her on social media. Her handle is fwscout, F for food, W for wine, on Twitter and Instagram. And she's at Dana Cowan on Facebook, D-A-N-A-C-O-W-I-N. And to check out the inspiring lineup of guests on Speaking Broadly, go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash series forward slash speaking hyphen broadly, or just search the word Speaking Broadly. On your favorite podcast app. And we're even going to share a sample episode um, on the Inside Joya's Kitchen feed. So look for that while we're on hiatus. The joy Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH, thanks to my co producer at the foundation, Lawrence Alkeld, And today's sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network is The Great Jeet. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review, which will help new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes or the season premiere. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Networks on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Fashions world next season on Inside Julia's Kitchen.